Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 7. We're going to start a brand new chapter in the Word of God tonight, Hebrews chapter 7. My goal this evening is to get through the first 10 verses. The chapter division comes after verse number 10, and we'll try to look at that next week, uh, verses 11 through 28. But tonight, we'll be looking primarily verses 1 through 10. Now, for us to truly understand the book of Hebrews, then we, we must understand the purpose for which it was written and um, and keep that in context as we study through this great book, all right? So let's review just a little bit and talk about that before we go any further into chapter number seven. You must remember that the Hebrews was written to who? It's written to the Jews, to the Hebrews, to the, the, the people who were once of the Jewish faith. And they adhered to the Old Testament teaching that came um, according to the law, all right? They were under the Old Covenant or under the law. Now, the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to teach us how much better the New Covenant is than the Old Covenant, amen? The Old Covenant is by the law. The New Covenant is by grace. The Old Covenant comes um, in the Old Testament, and the New, Te New Covenant is all about what Jesus does in the New Testament, can you say amen? And so there's, there's a contrast continually between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and why the New Covenant is so much better. Now, why is the writer doing this? Well, if you remember, I told you that it, during this time, these Christians who were once Jews, who once practiced Judaism and were under the Old Covenant, they were being persecuted greatly. Right now, uh, or excuse me, when, when this was written... Um, these people were being beaten, imprisoned, killed. As a matter of fact, I've heard it said that Nero, the Roman emperor at the time, actually lit his garden at night with crucified, burning bodies of Christians. That's how much he hated Christians. They were fed to um, the wild animals there in the Colosseum. They were killed by gladiators, all at the direction of the emperor Nero. Now, it all started when the Christians got the blame for the great fire in Rome. If you remember, I told you when we began this thing that Nero had actually set fire to the slums in Rome because he was tired of them. And he wanted to tear down the slums and build uh, new buildings in the city of Rome, but the fire got away from him. And it ended up burning the majority of the city and many people died. Now, he didn't want to take the blame for that as emperor. So what he did was, he said, well, the Christians did it. The Christians set the fire. And that ignited a storm of persecution all over the Roman Empire. So that wherever um, the Roman government had authority, Christians were being persecuted greatly. Like I said, many times being beaten, many times being imprisoned, many times being killed. I mean, that's what was going on. Now, these early Christians who were once Jews looked around and began to realize, you know what? Nobody's persecuting those who are practicing the Jewish faith. No one is persecuting those who are still practicing um, under the old covenant. You know, so what we're going to do to, to get out of some of this persecution and the threat of being killed, we're going to go back to living under the law, to worshiping God under the law. And really what the writer in the, for the book of Hebrews, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what happens is he spends... Um, chapter after chapter, over and over and over again, telling us how much better the new covenant is than the old covenant. L let me give you the 
what I believe to be the central verse, or, or really the theme of the whole book of Hebrews. It comes in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 6. Hebrews 8 and 6, watch what it says here. But now hath he, meaning Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Everybody say mediator. Now, what do you think the word mediator actually means? What would you say mediator means? The middleman. The one in the middle. And so, what this is saying in Hebrews chapter 8 is that Jesus is the one in the middle um, when it comes to the the new covenant. The covenant between those who've been saved by grace through faith and, and, and God the Father. Jesus is now the mediator of that new covenant. And we also call him the high priest. We'll get into that in a moment. But it says, this covenant is a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And really, that's the point of the whole book. The writer is proving to them, these early believers and to us, just how good it is to know Jesus. Just how much we have in Christ as Christ followers. Now, it's good for them to know that, but how do you believe it's good for us to know that? Why? Why? Because folks, even today, we too face persecution. Persecution. Now, we may not be being fed to um, wild animals in the Colosseum, and maybe we're not being crucified, but, you know, relative to where we live now, we truly do face persecution if you choose to live your life for Christ. I can promise you, you will face persecution in some form or some fashion. And so we need to know whatever persecution we face does not compare to the blessed hope we have in Christ. To to what we have under this new covenant that's based upon so many great promises. And so we need to understand what they also need to understand in that day. And that's why the book of Hebrews is so good for us. Now, he starts off talking about how that Jesus is greater than even the prophets. Now, let me ask you a question. Why do you think that was such an important point to speak to these early Christians who were once... Jewish believers who are watch Hebrews. Why was that such so important that they see Jesus is greater than the prophets? Absolutely. And the prophets God used in a fantastic way. Did you do you remember do you remember um, all throughout the Old Testament? How did God speak to his people? Through the prophets. Men like Isaiah and Daniel and and, and, and Jeremiah, men like Samuel, all of these great men of God all throughout the Old Testament were speaking for God to His people. They were His mouthpiece. That's what prophet means, to speak the word of the Lord. And so these prophets were giving these people um, God's truth for them. And so they held these prophets in high esteem. And, and so what the writer of the book of Hebrews says is, look, look the prophets were great. And under the law, the prophets had their time and God used them greatly. But Jesus is even greater than the prophets. Now, why is Jesus so much greater than the prophets? Well, Jesus and his finished work is actually a fulfillment of what the prophets prophesied about. Not only that, not only that, but Jesus is also the prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet. Now listen, Jesus we know to be God incarnate in the flesh. So if there had been anybody who spoke the word of the Lord, it has to be Jesus. He's God in the flesh speaking truth. 
to all who listen. He is the prophet. The prophets are great, but Jesus is greater. If you believe it, say amen. amen. And he goes on and talks about angels. Let me ask y'all something. How many of y'all are thankful for the ministry of angels? Amen. The Bible says that angels are ministering spirits to the people of God. The Bible promises that angels encamp about the righteous. I hold to that verse. Brothers and sisters, I claim that verse. As a father of teenagers, I claim that verse. Because the truth is, I can't go with them everywhere anymore. I don't know where they go or what they do, who they're around, what dangers they face. But I continually pray over my children that promise, Lord, Make your angels encamp about the righteous. See, I know my kids have trusted in Jesus as their personal Savior. And the righteousness of Christ has been imputed unto them. They are the righteous. And so I'm trusting that God will do exactly what He's promised to do and encamp around them His angelic ministers. That's not just true for my kids. That's true for every believer. And we see that outline all throughout the Old Testament is God used His angels to minister unto His people. It was powerful. Praise God for angels. I'm thankful for them. You'll be thankful for them too. And so the writer said, you know what? Angels are great, but Jesus is greater. How do we know Jesus is greater? Folks, He's the creator of the angels. He's the Lord of the angels. I remember in the book of Revelation, and I didn't look it up before I came out here tonight, but when we were studying Revelation in Wednesday night Bible class, we saw a point in time when John the Revelator, in his vision, saw an angelic being. And John fell down on his face before this angel. And the angel's like, whoa, wait a minute now, get on up, you're about to get both of us in trouble. Don't bow down to me. Don't worship me. The only one worthy of worship is King Jesus. He's my king. And he's also the king of the angelic beings themselves. Angels are great. They're just not in the same class as Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus is greater. That's the point of the writer. Then he goes on and talks about Moses. Now Moses was certainly esteemed and respected among the Jews. After all, Moses is the great deliverer. He's the one who preached the message of the Lamb and the blood applied to deliver the people from their bondage in Egypt. You remember? Moses is the one who received the law, the Ten Commandments from God, and then gave that law to mankind, to the Jews first. It was Moses who led these people from the place of bondage to the place of blessing in Canaan land. This great man of God was truly great. But Jesus is greater. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Moses preached the message of the Lamb that brought deliverance through its shed blood. Jesus is the Lamb that brings deliverance from our bondage to sin. How? Through His shed blood. And by faith, 
when we apply that blood to our heart and life, listen to me now, we too can be set free. That's why Jesus said, whom the Son, says whom the Son sets free is what? Free indeed. That's why the Bible says in John 1.29 that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It's King Jesus. Moses is great. Jesus is greater. Greater than the prophets. Greater than angels. Greater than even Moses. But you know what else? The writer makes it plain here in Hebrews 7 that the priesthood of Jesus far outranks the priesthood of the Levites in the Old Testament. The Levitical priesthood. The priesthood of Aaron. And that's what we're looking at here in these first two verses. The Bible says, if you remember in Hebrews 6.20, brother, put that on the screen for me. Hebrews chapter 6. We looked at this last week. The 20th verse, last verse in that chapter. It says, Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Watch this now. Jesus is made an high priest forever. Everybody say forever. forever. After the order of who? Melchizedek. There is much debate, much debate about Melchizedek. Now, we can get in the weeds if we want. But I'm going to try not to do that. There's a lot of rabbits to be run. But I'm going to try not to do that. Let me tell you why I'm going to try not to do that. Because the main message that you need to see from Hebrews chapter 7 is that Melchizedek is a picture of the Lord Jesus. A type of Jesus from the Old Testament that better shows us who Jesus is and what He does for those to whom He's priest. Amen? So let's look at it. There's four or five things here in these first ten verses that I want you to see about Melchizedek that is true about the Lord Jesus. After all, He is a foreshadowing. He is a picture or a type of Christ that shows us truly what Jesus is going to look like in his priesthood. Look at verse number one. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. It says Melchizedek is first of all what? It says right there, king of Salem. Everybody say king. But then it says he's also a priest. He's a priest of the Most High God. Now, why is this significant? Because there, are no, there is no other priest or king throughout the Old Testament that crosses roles. Throughout the Old Testament, there's not a king who's ever a priest. And throughout the Old Testament, there's not a priest who ever becomes a king. Those two roles are separated. But when it comes to Melchizedek, listen to me now. He was king and he was priest, which is a picture of... Of the Lord Jesus. How do you believe tonight that Jesus is King of Kings? In the book of Revelation, the Bible says that Jesus is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. That every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that He is Lord. See, the truth is, we've got a decision to make. Either we can bow down or we will bow later. But everybody's going to bow. Everybody is going to bow the knee to King Jesus. You say, well, brother, I don't believe that. If that 
that matters nothing about what's going to take place, whether you believe it or not. It amazes me, man. You've been sharing the gospel with people and they'll be like, well, I just don't believe it. That don't mean nothing. That don't hurt God. That in no way limits God from doing what He's going to do. I'm here to warn you. I'm here to tell you. Whether you choose to bow or not, you will bow. Whether you believe it or not, you will bow. And I will too. Jesus is King. Now and forever. He's a king, but he's also a priest. The Bible teaches that he is our high priest. I just read to you um, just a moment ago, Hebrews 4.15. You remember that? That we have a high priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows what we're going through. I read to you in Hebrews 8.6 how that he is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the middleman or the go-between between God the Father and the sinful man. Jesus is that mediator, that high priest. So Melchizedek, being king and priest, is a picture of Jesus who is king and who is priest. If you believe in say amen. Not only does it say he's priest and king in verse 1, but he also says two things about him in verse number 2. Watch what it says. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness. Do not miss this one. I want to give you a great verse. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, he was accused of destroying the law. He was accused by the scribe, the Pharisee, the Sadducee, all the religious leaders of that day of not adhering to the law, of breaking the law, of not respecting the law. And Jesus clears all that up right here in Matthew 5, 17. He says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. Watch what he says. I am not come to destroy, but what? To fulfill. What does that mean? Well, what does righteousness mean? What does king of righteousness mean? Let's, let's talk about the word righteous. You can almost hear the meaning when you say the word. What's the first thing you hear when you hear righteous? Right. To be righteous means that you do everything right according to God's standard. And we need to understand that. We need to realize that because the truth is the only standard that matters is God's anyway. Amen. <laughs> That's another thing that blows my mind about, about people, man, when you're, when you're witnessing to them, when you talk to them about the Lord. A lot of times what you'll find is that people have a real, well, not a lot of times, pretty much all the time, unless the Lord truly does the work that only God can do. People have a hard time admitting they're wrong or their sin. And they want to justify their actions. And they want to talk about their goodness. And if you tell them what they're doing is wrong, a lot of times they'll say, well, I just don't agree with you. Well, then you're going by your standard. And it's God's standard that counts. That's right. Until you can create your universe, until you can sit in the heaven, the earth being your footstool, 
You better adhere to God's standard. Because that's what matters. Now, the good news is, Jesus did everything right according to God's standard, which is, Matthew 5, 17, the law and the prophets. He did exactly what the law said He should do. He didn't do what the law said He shouldn't do. And then He fulfilled the writings of the prophets concerning the Messiah or Himself. He fulfilled completely, totally, completely, perfectly the righteous standard of God by keeping the law and fulfilling prophecy. Now listen to me. Do you realize that Jesus fulfilled over 300? There's some debate about this. Our youth right now on Wednesday nights, I'm very thankful for this, they're going through the prophecies in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ. I like that. <coughs> now, me and Ross have talked about this. Me and some of you have talked about this. And there's, diff there's different numbers depending on who you talk to. I'm just going to say over 300. Some people say there are 313 separate prophecies in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled when he got here. Some people say there were 330-something, 33 or 35 prophecies in the Old Testament that were filled, fulfilled by Jesus when he got here. Listen to me, folks. Regardless of what number you want to use, that can't be coincidence. There's no way. The chances of that happening coincidentally is astronomical. I mean, it's a number you can't even write down and understand. Well, you can write it down, but you'll never really fathom it. You'll never really understand it. It's got a lot of zeros behind it. A whole lot. Now, now, now listen to me, folks. Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies that happened in one man. But what, what I think maybe even is, is more impressive than that is that he lived for 33 and a half years upon this earth, tempted just like we're tempted, yet he didn't sin. He kept the law and the prophets and fulfilled both righteously, completely, totally. Think about that just a moment. He was tempted like we are, Hebrews 4.15 says, but he, he was tempted without sin. It means he didn't fall into temptation. Every temptation that you face or have faced, he faced. And I think even more so. The Bible says he was led away of the Spirit in Matthew chapter 4 into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan himself. I mean, it was not some low-ranking demon, some low-ranking power or principality that was tempting the Lord Jesus. It was Satan himself tempting Jesus. And offering unto him all the pleasures the world had to offer. Yet Jesus did not sin. Let me give you another good verse from Genesis chapter 6. It's going to be about, I think verse 5, it's 5 or 6. I can't remember exactly. Just read the whole chapter of Genesis 6, you'll get it. But in Genesis chapter number 6, the Bible says, that the Lord destroyed the earth with a flood because the thoughts and intents of man's heart was upon evil continually. You know what that teaches me? 
our very thoughts can be sinful. So to say that Jesus lived perfectly is to say that He never once even had a bad thought, a wrong thought about anything or anybody. To be honest with you, and that's what I always will be, if tonight, somehow, some way, we could take my thoughts and they could plug one of those USB cords into my head somehow and you could put up on that screen up there the thoughts that I sometimes have that pop into my head on a daily basis. If you could put those up on the screen, y'all probably wouldn't let me preach something. Y'all probably call them an emergency vote and vote me out. But now let me tell you this. If I could take a USB cord and plug you in to that screen, I'd have a whole lot more to preach about Sunday. Do what? We're all the subjects. We're all the subjects for preaching to you. Yeah, everybody. That's my point. Everybody is, absolutely. What I'm trying to say is, folks, our very thought life is enough to send us to hell. Jesus never even had a bad thought. Let me give you a great verse in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. The Bible says, He did no sin, neither was God found in His mouth, who when He was reviled, reviled not again. That's a good one. Let, let, let me tell you what I struggle with. And it's just some of my own struggles. It's, and, and a lot of it has to do with my sinful pride and arrogance <coughs> that I struggle with. You know that I can be perfectly fine with someone disagreeing with me until they revile me openly. And then it messes with my pride a little bit. And then it's almost like now I've got to take it. And I'm going to take it. You understand? Why? Because I feel like somehow they've reviled me. They've, they spoke against me. They, they've talked down to me in some way. And now i really got to take it. Anybody else? Now, the Bible says they did that to Jesus. He was reviled. But he didn't in turn, revile someone else or the one that was doing it to him. Now, the difference between me and Jesus is that he knows everything. He is the creator of the universe. I have no right to get mad at anybody who comes against me because, folks, I've still got a lot to learn. I have a finite mind with a finite understanding and I've still got a long way to go. Jesus, on the other hand, knew all things. If anybody had the right to revile others for reviling Him or to speak against others who were speaking against Him, it was Jesus. But the Bible says He didn't do that. That verse blows me away. Then He goes on and says, 
When he suffered, he threatened not. When he was beat with a cat of nine tails and suffered, for nothing he did wrong, he, he did wrong. The, the Bible says he didn't turn around and say, I'll tell you what, you may do this now, but you wait and see what you've got coming. You've got control over me now, but one day you're going to burn in hell. You know, he could have said that and it would have been right. You know he could have pronounced judgment on any of those people that was beating him with a cat of nine tails, that was putting a crown of thorns on his hand, that was putting the spikes through his wrists and feet, that was that was mocking him and plucking his beard out and spitting upon him. Anybody ever spit on him? Think about that. But the Bible says he didn't threaten them. But if you remember, he said that at any moment, you remember when Switchblade carrying Peter pulled out a switchblade in the Garden of Gethsemane and cut off the soldier's ear? Remember that? Jesus said, Peter, put your sword up. Do you not know at any time I could call 12 legions of angels to my rescue? So here he is being beaten, bloody, to a pulp. So much so, the Bible says he would have, that, that he was marred more than any man. He would have probably, most likely, been completely, totally unrecognizable when he made his way to the cross, when he walked to Golgotha. He was beaten that badly. Yet the one who could have called 12 legions of angels didn't even threaten those who were causing him to suffer. Yet, he hangs on a cross and says, Father, forgive them. That blows me away. But committed himself to him that judges righteously. Verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Verse 25. For you were a sheep going astray, but now are returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. The Bible says Jesus was completely and totally righteous in every way. There was no deceit in him, no guile even found in his mouth. He is the king of righteousness. If you believe it, say amen. amen. How many of you know he is the king of peace? Because that's what the Bible calls Melchizedek right here in verse number two. King of righteousness was Melchizedek, but also, after that also, the king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Salem in the Greek is actually shalom in the Hebrew. And you know what shalom means? Peace. So the Bible says that Melchizedek was a king not only of righteousness but of peace. Isaiah 9 and 6 says that Jesus is what? The prince of peace. Now let me say one thing before we go any further. You will never, ever, ever Have peace with God until you know the peace of God. Look at Romans 5 1. Romans 5 1. Watch this. 
Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I said that backwards. I apologize. You'll never know the peace of God until you are at peace with God. And how we are at peace with God when we are justified or made right by faith in Jesus. Wow. He is our peace. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. He's the priest. He's the king. And the Bible also says he's without father or mother, according to Melchizedek. Look at verse number four. Now, a lot of people say, well, that just means uh, that, that um, supernaturally he had no beginning or end. I don't believe that. I think actually what the Bible is saying, there is no record of his father or mother. Dr. J. Vernon McGee says it like this. He said that um, the Bible is a book of genealogies, and he's right. I remember years ago, um, brother Dr. Johnny Mays, some of you all know Dr. Johnny. He did a family tree of, our, of Brandy's family. And he went all the way back to medieval, medieval times in England and traced their family all the way back to that. And, and then he kept going, you know, on further back. And he said he got to the place where he started to recognize Bible names. That went all the way back. Now, why? how are people able to do that? Trace lineage all the way back to the beginning. Because the Bible is a book of genealogies. If you don't believe me, go and read the Old Testament. Now, the genealogies are the ones that you skipped over. <laughs> right? You'd be reading along and then you got into this one, begat that one, and that begat this one over here. This one over here begat that one. He's the son of this one and the son of, and the father of this one. And, and you just said, Lord... You know what I'm saying? We've all been there. But now those genealogies are important. Because then you can trace back exactly what God is claiming. That's a big deal. Where you came from. And who's your mama name? It's a big deal. Especially in Bible times. Why is the genealogy of Melchizedek not listed? Why, why is it not? How do we not know who his mother and who his father? I'll tell you what I think it is. Because he's the type of Jesus. And that's the way God wanted it. Why is that important? The Bible says that Jesus in Revelation 22 verses 12 through 14. Brother, put that on the screen. That he is the Alpha. And he is the Omega. Watch. Revelation 22 verse 12. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. How many of you know you're never going to go beyond Jesus or behind Jesus in our past? You're never going to get behind Him from eternity past. And how do you know you're never going to get beyond Him in eternity future? He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning. At the end. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, that's why the Bible says he's after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is pointing us to the priesthood of Jesus. Who Jesus was and is right now today. Now, how does this contrast with the priesthood of the Levites? Or the priest of the Old Testament. 
How many of them, none of them could claim to be king? God did call them to be priests, but like I said before, no priest was ever king and no king was ever priest. That's a title set aside for none other than the Lord Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek. How many of you know none of them could claim to be completely and totally righteous? Matter of fact, Aaron was the original priest, Levitical priest, that God first instituted in Exodus, I think it's 29. You'll find that. Aaron was the original priest under the Old Testament law. And if you remember, it was Aaron that fashioned the golden calf after the people broke off their earrings and threw it in the fire because they thought Moses had left them. Moses is up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments, and all the people are down in the valley asking Aaron to make them a golden calf so they can return to the pagan worship they were a part of in Egypt. I don't think you could call Aaron completely righteous, could you? Let me tell you why. Because Aaron's a man just like I am. Jesus is the God man. The, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament could not claim to be righteous. How many of they couldn't claim to give you peace? They couldn't. Nobody can. I saw a sign. I don't know where this stuff's coming from. Y'all may have seen it in the table. The uh, little white signs that talk about Miss Sheila, the advisor. Have y'all saw any of these? Have y'all saw this? That's bothering me. I'm going to tell you something. Leave that stuff, that trash, alone. My mama, God rest her soul, would say it like this. There's hanks all over there. <laughs> Literally. Listen. Demonic presence is real. Demonic power is real. Leave it alone. I don't read a horoscope. I don't need a horoscope. You don't either. Demonic entities, demonic presence, demonic powers are real. Leave it alone. Where am I going with this? Listen. Miss Sheila can't even promise to give you peace. I promise you. She can't. She can't do it. She may promise it, but she can't deliver it. You know how I know that? Dion Warwick. Dion Warwick. When I was a kid, guess what Dion Warwick always was the spokesperson for? The Psychic Friends Network. Y'all remember? Used to be late at night on TV. You could call in and get your reading. Pay them some money. Guess what? They must not knew too much about the future because they are no longer in business. <laughs> if they would have known what's coming, they would have made some different business decisions, but they didn't. Are you understanding? Only Jesus can give you peace. No one else. Trust in Him. Rely on Him. Look to Him. He's different than the Old Testament priest, the Old Covenant. And he's much better. Can we got anything else? Comments or questions?